Hello, and welcome back to the Grace Downtown podcast. Today, we'll be bringing you the second of the three talks delivered by Reverend Tom Gibbs at this year's Grace Downtown Fall Retreat. But before we get to that, I just wanted to give you a quick reminder. Next Sunday, December 13th, is Christmas in Story and Song. This is our community's annual musical celebration of the Christmas story. Uh, If you have friends or neighbors that you've been looking for an opportunity to invite to come with you to church, then this candlelight service is going to be one of the best times of year to invite them for the first time. Also at Christmas in Story and Song, we'll be collecting a special mercy offering to support the work our Diaconate's affordable housing team will be doing with Habitat for Humanity this January. Now... Here's Tom. Anyway, I want us to look in John chapter 6. And one of the things Mike and, um, and Glenn asked me to do is share a little bit of the story of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. We're now in our 14th year of ministry. Uh, my wife, Tara, uh, my wife of now 21 years. Um, that's right. She gets most of the credit. Um, but we, we moved to San Antonio in 2002. Um, and... Redeemer now worships in uh, two different sites, like you guys, we have sites, Um, although we're not as developed in that process, we're just beginning with a a second worship site in the northwest part of the city, Uh, that's majority Hispanic, um, Latino population. We, uh, in 2012, bought a, a facility, Glenn mentioned this earlier, downtown San Antonio, uh, renovated. It was the old YMCA downtown. They had moved out, and we're like a half a block from the Riverwalk. We're a part of the urban uh, infill redevelopment of the downtown uh, of our city, which is exciting. Um, Redeemer is, is growing. We're diversifying. We're reaching lots of different kinds of people in our city. Um, several of you have asked how big is our church. We're about 720 uh, members or so. Um, But here's the thing, when my wife and I moved to San Antonio, all of that was a dream, literally. Um, All of that was a dream. Um, In fact, when we moved to uh, San Antonio, I had lots of people say, that's that's not going to happen. In fact, we, we... we were talking about doing a center city church. That idea was, was not very common unless you were on the East Coast. People didn't even talk that way. And, and so the idea of planting a church in the urban core of San Antonio raised all kinds of objections. One of the first ones was that, that there's no way a white guy raised in the rural south um, is going to reach a majority Latino uh, city um, so, so that they might come to Christ. That, that's just not going to happen. And I didn't have any illusions about that. I didn't speak Spanish. And, and I knew that if we were going to grow a church, we were going to reach people who were white, who were English-speaking, and who had a heart for the city. But that raised the second objection that people had about us going to San Antonio. Because um, the, the, the second objection is that we weren't going to be able to reach... Um, the wealthier, society-oriented families, um, the people that had lived for generations in our city, they were not going to be interested in forming a new church. They would never participate in, in a center city church. Um, 
and and so we were said you know told you shouldn't go plant a church in um, the urban core of San Antonio. Well, my wife and I we didn't listen to those objections. Um, we did in fact move, and we uh, began what we now call Redeemer Church. Um, but but it it flourished for maybe reasons that you're not thinking it, it um, would flourish for. Uh, I think when people think about a new church starting, we think in terms of vision, right, and strategy. What was your strategy? What was your vision? And the truth is our vision and strategy was not uh, unique. It was probably very similar to y'all's. Um, lots of different churches have planted with similar strategies. Um, or maybe it might flourish because we had a group of people, a core group, a highly motivated, talented group of people that wanted to be part of starting a new church. Well, we didn't have any group that wanted to start um, our church. When we moved to the city, when we were asked, um, I asked that question, you know, is there a core group? And uh, the, the people that wanted to start Redeemer lived in Dallas. Um, <laughs> those were my motivated supporters. <laughs> Um, there was nobody that wanted to be part of starting a new church in, in San Antonio. And, and then the, the final um, strategy, it was also a weak link, the planter. Um, I had no uh, um, uh, misconceptions about um, my wife and I being able to do this. We knew the truth about ourselves, and we um, thought... You know, we might spend two or three years in San Antonio and move away, uh, recognizing that this, you know, was just a dream. It wasn't what God wanted. It was what maybe we wanted. Um, but we still moved. We still went because we were confident of something else, not vision, not people, not giftedness, um, but God. God's life in the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. While important, strategies and core groups and gifted planters are never sufficient to plant a church, especially in a challenging place. Um, in challenging places, the thing that is essential is what God brings. Um, it's the movement of His Spirit in the life of his people. We wanted to plant a church so that people would encounter life. We wanted to plant a church that people would encounter the life that God gives in the Lord Jesus Christ. And life is mysterious. How do you describe it? What is life? Um, if we were to answer that question, we might describe, say, take a tree. You know, we've enjoyed the forest here and all of the beautiful uh, trees that are around it. We, we might describe a tree in terms of the branches, the trunk, the roots, and maybe the fruits that are on that tree. And, and yet those things can be there and the tree not be alive. Life is something that's in the tree, that's in the fruits, it's in the branches, it's in the leaves and the roots, but it's not those things in and of themselves. No matter the programs, no matter the strategies, no matter the personalities, assets, and resources, without the life of God, churches die. Without the life of God, Christians die. 
But without the life of God at work, God's mission in this world does not move forward. And so when we went to San Antonio, we wanted to cultivate a dependency upon the life that God gives in the gospel. That was our biggest priority. That was our foremost um, focus. But here's the problem. You already know that. I know that. But the way in which we relate to life, and even the life that God gives, is complicated. Um, There's a great temptation when we come to God for life. And that's not new. That's something that Jesus encountered in his ministry. People were coming to Jesus for life. And they got life wrong. We see that in John chapter 6, verse 22 and following. I just want to read verse 22 through 26, and then we'll keep on going. Actually, I'll read through verse 27. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly. I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. For on him, uh, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Let's pray again as we look at God's word. Lord Jesus, thank you for this, your holy word. We thank you that you are the bread of life, and we ask that you would abundantly give yourself to us, even now as we look at this, your word. We pray in your name. Amen. You know, like those who are coming to Jesus, we too come to Jesus, right? And we come looking for him to provide stuff for us. Uh, This passage is on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and um, that was obviously a significant miracle. I mean, crowds and crowds of people encountering Jesus uh, performed such an astounding thing, um, and it was creating a stir. People were wondering, who is Jesus? Who is this guy? Is he a prophet? Is he a king? Is he the Messiah? That They were searching for him. They were seeking to get those questions answered. Um, but Jesus, when he encounters their search, sees through their superficial motivations. He questions their motivations. Again, truly, truly, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you're seeking to get your fill. They're coming to Jesus with utilitarian terms. How can I use you? 
How can I use you so that my agenda, my plan for my life might move forward? And I think that we can all identify with that temptation. Jesus seems to be a great method. Right? He has all the power, all the resources, all the talent, all the time. How can I get that and leverage it for me? That's what the disciples are doing. That's what the crowds are doing. How can this be leveraged for my purposes? And I think we often approach Jesus with those same kinds of needs, even real and important needs. And you know them. Um, material uh, possessions and vocational successes, control over our marriage and our family, the health of our bodies, our psychological happiness, comfort and ease. I mean, all of these things. We, we pray, Jesus, give me this. Jesus, give me life. It's especially good when we know those things that we pray for are the very things Jesus says he wants to give, right? It's hard to sort through to the bottom of our motivations. Why am I coming to Jesus? What do I want him to do for me? How have I confused life? How have I gotten it backwards thinking that Jesus is a means to my life as opposed to Jesus being the life that I seek. Do you see, that's the difference, isn't it? Is Jesus a means, an instrument unto some other purpose, some other design for life that I've given for myself, or am I coming to him on his terms? And that's the clarity that Jesus gives. There are these complex motivations that are harbored in the heart of each one of us, and we come to Jesus wanting to use him in our pursuit of life, and Jesus wants to clear that up for us by helping us understand the kind of life that endures. Right? He says, do not labor for the life that perishes, but labor for the life that endures. In verse 35, he tells us plainly, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the lasting and enduring bread come down from heaven, from God the Father. The issue is not coming to Jesus for the life that he can bring, the version of life that I have envisioned. The issue is coming to Jesus for him. Right? That's the issue. Am I coming to be satisfied with him? Another way of asking the question, is Jesus enough? Are you enough? All the while, our hearts are clamoring for all of this other stuff. Like those who are seeking Jesus. When we taste something going our way, then we're like, well, can I get a little more of that? Can I get that to work out this way? So Jesus wants us to help us understand how life works on God's terms. He's the author of life, right? So he has a sovereign claim to it. In this passage, in all of John's gospel, maybe the passage that emphasizes the sovereignty of God over 
life better than all of the other chapters in John's gospel. But, but that's the theme. Life is a sovereign gift. That life is the sovereign gift of the Father in heaven. I'm going to keep reading in verse 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to them, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. According to Jesus, life is the gift of the Father revealed in Jesus Christ. Life is not something that we can earn. It's something that's given. It's a gift. Life is God's idea. And just if we let that sink in, that means it can't be manipulated. That's the important thing. If, if it's a gift, we don't have control over it. We can't manipulate it. The next thing I, I want us to see is not just is life given, but our entry into life, Jesus says, is sovereignly created by him. He says in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And look down in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Wow. If we take these verses together, it means that coming to Jesus is a result of the Father's giving and the Father's drawing and changing Jesus, God, is, in a sense, controlling our entry into life. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, when we think about that, I, I know that, um, that that might create some consternation, right? Um, and in fact... Some theologians throughout the history of, of the world have taken these words and narrowed the scope of life as though God wants to restrict life from people. And that's absolutely opposite of Jesus' goal. Jesus' goal is not to restrict access to life. He says, don't labor for the life that perishes, labor for the life that endures. Jesus' goal is that people might come to saving life Jesus' focus is not to restrict life, but to loosen our grip on the idea that we control it. That's his goal. He wants us to realize that we're not coming with control over this thing that we seek. 
It is controlled by God the Father. And He actually controls the gift and the access. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him, unless the Father pulls us into that life. Jesus wants to set us free from that illusion that we are in control of this. There's a story that Philip Yancey tells in one of his books, I can't remember which one, but it's of a, a gambler from Chicago in a sort of a, a low-rung uh, gangster and um, his family is celebrating his death, and um, at the funeral, they have this guy dressed up in a, uh, you know, this fancy hot pink suit, and clutched between his fingers are $500 bills, and they've gone all out with the coffin that's designed into a chrome-rimmed Cadillac Seville. You know, you can imagine the picture. But no matter how you dress up death, death remains death, right? No matter what we do with it, we still can't control it so that it goes away. We don't make things live. God makes things live. God controls life. He's the one who must do that work to move me towards him. And when he does, it profoundly changes the way I relate to life. It profoundly changes the way I relate to God because now I'm not in the position of power. I'm in a position of need and dependency. And that was the fundamental problem for the Pharisees who were following Jesus. That, that was one of the fundamental problems for those who were coming to Jesus even at this point. Jesus was subverting that power dynamic, this idea that because I'm an insider, a religious insider, that somehow I have claim over how God is going to execute his economy of salvation. Jesus says, no, you don't. It doesn't work that way. God's power is sovereign. He creates life. He gives life. God's life is in the driver's seat. And in fact, that life is focused not on us, but on Jesus. We, we know that Jesus wants us to enter life because he says, I am the bread of life. I am the gift. I'm the one that you're to seek. I'm the one that you're to find. This is God's will. Look in verse 40. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. That, that if you're wondering, what is God's will about life? There it is. This is God's will. Not that we would be excluded from life, but that we would enter it. Because God says it's focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. My, my appetite for Jesus reveals God's life-giving work. And when we think about, you know, where do I 
sit in relationship to life? Well, that's when we should be asking our question, where's my focus? Do I want Jesus? Am I drawn to Jesus? Am I captivated by Jesus, the story of Jesus? All, all that he is, all that he's done, all that he's doing in this world. Our, our hearts are telling the story of what kind of life we want. Um, Pirates of the Caribbean, Jack Sparrow. He has his compass, right? The compass, it points at what he wants most. We really don't need a compass, do we? We, we have that already. What does our heart most want? And often, I think, when we, if we were to ask that question, answer that question, we want a lot of things that we hope God gives us. God is in the story. He's in the equation. He's just, he's just in that position of instrumentality. He's the instrument. And God wants to subvert that so that he's not a means to our end. He wants to be the end. He wants to be the end of our life. He wants to be the goal of our life. He wants to be that life that satisfies us. He doesn't want to be a means unto counterfeits of life. Success, money, ambition. A beautiful family. Acceptance, approval. He doesn't even want to be a means unto Christian counterfeits. Morality church attendance, impeccable quiet times, so that we can feel better about ourselves. Jesus doesn't want to be a servant unto lifeless religion. There's the religious counterfeits, the worldly counterfeits, and yet they still are not focused on Christ. That's their problem. Jesus has gotten out of focus. Um, we can always know that our Christianity has, has um, fallen into disrepair when we've made God the means of a vision of our life that doesn't really need God. Because if we got it, we wouldn't need God anymore. That's the problem with Phariseeism or legalism. If I'm successful, I don't need Jesus. That, that's why I say, Jesus, don't labor for that food that perishes. Labor for the food that endures. That's me. Come to me. It's a sovereign gift, sovereign creation, sovereign focus. And there's a sovereign security to this life. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Verse 39, 
And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he's given me. Jesus is on a mission of life. This is his explicit mission. It's given by the Father. And it's secured by Christ. Once we enter into this life, once we begin to taste this life, we can't undo it. It's set in motion by God, and it's secured by God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He won't cast us out. He will lose nothing of all that the Father has given. He promises to raise us up at the last day. The Apostle Paul says something similar in Philippians chapter 1. He says that God will complete what he has begun. What a great and glorious hope. You know, I feel most days that I've only, you know, we're just getting started. We're just getting started. But God promises that life will complete its work. Regardless of failure, regardless of struggle, regardless of those besetting sins, regardless of those dark moments. Jesus is going to finish his goal. What encouraging hope. But it means that we're not in the driver's seat as a Christian. We're vessels of life, but we're not the givers of it. It puts us in this radical place of humility. This is how Christianity works. If we ever slip over into this idea of mastery, we get ourselves in trouble. Life operates as we're in this position of being a receiver. When we baptize children at Redeemer, um, I, I always remind the parents uh, that they're beggars. Beggars before Christ. And I always remind the cong- congregation that the infants are beggars before Christ for life. And so inevitably, before we have a baptism, we have beggars bringing beggars, right? Slightly more advanced beggars. Showing these beggars where to find bread. That's the position Jesus wants us to be in that place of needing his life, focused on that life that he gives, not in the position of mastery. Now, some of you know much better than me how much information there is in the world. But there's a lot of information, right? Um, And and we're storing more and more information. Um, The unit of measure is what? A bite. Right? That's what it is. And I'm told that we we store um, like a photograph with five megabytes, something like that. A gigabyte will store a movie, hour and a half movie. Um, but, and, and then the numbers go, go up from there, a, a terabyte. Um, 
The, the U.S. Library of Congress in, in 2000, I was told, would take up to 10 terabytes of memory. And then the statistics I, I saw that that if you were to take all of the data stored in the world, it would total 1,200 exabytes. Some of you know what that means. <laughs> this may make more sense. It would, it, it would completely cover the planet in a layer of 52 books deep. Here's a different sort of unit of measurement. 2,000 years ago, the uh, Library of Alexandria, the goal of the Library of Alexandria was to collect all of the knowledge in the known world. It was estimated there were hundreds of thousands of scrolls there. It, it was the gold standard. But here's the thing, if we were to divvy that library up, if all of the data now in existence were divvied up equally, every single person alive today would receive more than 300 times as much information as was stored in the Library of Alexandria. You know massive amounts of things. All of you. That doesn't mean we know life. Being a data junkie does, does not lead to a better life. We're bombarded with information. And we think that life will be found as we master all of this stuff. We become masters of the data. The scientific data, the sociological data, um, the, the, the technological data, the physiological data, the religious data, all of this data, we, we, we process it, we download it, we manipulate it, we predict with it, all because we want to enrich life. This is what we say. We want to build life. Jesus is saying, I am the life. I have assimilated the data. He's wanting us to come to him as we sort through those questions, not thinking that we have the control over them. Let me pray. Jesus, forgive us for being data junkies for thinking that we control your life. Would you put us in that radical place of need, knowing that in that place you delight to give yourself, you delight to meet us with yourself, not as a means unto our end, but as the end, as the one who gives life. I, I pray, Jesus, that you would guide our small groups as we discuss these things, that, that we might seek you and labor for that which endures. It's in your name we pray. Amen.